Well, I want to add my welcome to those who've come before, and uh, it's wonderful to see you this morning. I hope you have a copy of the scriptures with you, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, or perhaps a sermon uh, scripture journal, if you're uh, taking notes that way. We still have a few of those back at the information table, if you'd like to use that tool to uh, help you as you take notes and try to remember and think later on through the week and in your ABF classes what, uh, what we've spoken on today. Just a couple of things, uh, a further announcement here before we uh, get into the scripture today. Uh, the end of the month, uh, October 31st, is a Sunday this month, and some of you already heard me uh, when I posted a little video on Facebook this week, but uh, for those who didn't, I want to let you know that because the 31st is on a Sunday this year, that uh, there's a couple of things that kind of converge on that date, as you probably know. Uh, one, it's a fifth Sunday, and typically we'll split up into our ABF groups on a fifth Sunday for fellowship. It's also uh, the anniversary of the Reformation, so that morning, uh, in our morning service, I'll be preaching on sola gratia, which is one of the five solas of the Reformation, preaching about the fact that we are saved only by grace in the Lord Jesus. So looking forward to preaching that. It'll be a wonderful gospel presentation as well uh, to invite uh, lost folks to come to hear on the 31st. But that evening, because uh, our world around us also has lots of little kids going from house to house trying to get candy on that particular day, uh, we're going to try to take advantage of that and do another community outreach that night. So instead of Awana, instead of prime time, instead of our ABF 5th Sundays, we're going to ask all of you that can to just come together, be here on our property. We'll have kind of a scaled-down family fun fest that night uh, that will allow the community to come and enjoy for free. And uh, I just want you here to rub shoulders with people uh, from 5.30 to 7.30 for two hours that night, of course, weather permitting, um, we're just going to mingle with those who come by, and there's usually a lot of folks that come by when we do something like that, and uh, just love on them and share your life and your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ uh, with them. That's all I want you to do. Don't worry about uh, volunteering or wanting to serve. I've got some folks I'm working on with, with regard to that. I just want you to come and be the church and enjoy it yourself, enjoy fellowship and some fun, but also uh, rub shoulders with those in our community who need Jesus. And uh, so this will be another opportunity for us to do that. That's uh, coming up on the end of the month. So just a little over, I guess it's, is that three weeks from today? Does that sound right? Three weeks? Yeah, three weeks from today. It's a long month. Um, and then um, in preparation for that, I also noted on Facebook and just wanted to make you aware of the fact that there's some evangelism training that's taking place on the 23rd. That's the Saturday prior, a week prior to that event. Um, a lot of times we try to precede events like that with some evangelism training of some sort, just to sharpen our skills, to get us, you know, get us a little boldness, to help us uh, uh, get ready to minister the gospel to others, especially if you're uncomfortable or a little timid or maybe you don't feel quite competent and know what to say or how to approach it. And uh, there's a church that's already doing some evangelism training that day, um, and so we're just going to join in and take advantage of it. And so on the 23rd of October, it's a Saturday, in the morning from 8.30 to 12.30, up north in Carmel at Christ Community Church, they're hosting a training called Christianity Explored. 
And it's a well-known evangelism tool like uh, many of the others that we've used here, uh, like Way of the Master and uh, Two Ways to Live and other things that we've used. This is just another tool, another a way of approaching it, and um, I think it'll be helpful to you. They're asking $10 to help with the course materials and also, uh, I think, a breakfast that they're providing for you. So from 8.30 to 12.30 up in Carmel on October 23rd. It's a Saturday morning. If you can come, uh, your older kids too, anyone that's old enough to, to really speak and share uh, would be welcome to come as well. Um, and I'll put more links. Uh, I think those links may already be on the Facebook page, but we'll make sure they're out in the church email this week as well if you want to sign up for that. I'd encourage you to get sharpened up. Take, uh, take a morning and just uh, sharpen your skills for the gospel. And then come on the 31st and put it into action uh, with our church family. All right? So another opportunity to share Jesus with our neighbors. Uh, that's what we're all about here. And so uh, if you're able to, um, I'd ask you to just uh, come and join us and help us reach our community for Christ. Well, uh, I, th- I don't think we've uh, addressed our live stream people this morning either, but welcome to you. I know there's a, a bunch of you right now as we've got a bunch of folks dealing with sickness and uh, some in the hospital still and so uh, we just want you to know that we're thinking about you look forward to having you back with us uh, as soon as you're able and uh, hope that this morning is a blessing to you as well ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 7 through 16 the title of the sermon today is better together better together let me ask you a few questions do you have time in your life for both work and rest Can you turn work mode off? Yes, you know who I'm talking about. What keeps you from turning work off? Is it really the expectations of your employer? Is there there some cold, inflexible rule that if you transgress it, you'll lose your job? Or do you sometimes stay on when you could be off? And if you do, why? Solomon continues his theme that we've been talking about here, about work, in the remaining verses of chapter 4. And he emphasizes a specific truth that can either be discouraging to you, or it can be hopeful to you, depending on your perspective. So let's take a look at our text this morning and see how the preacher is laying out this passage for us. I want you just to uh, just take some notes about the structure and the form of this passage. The first thing you'll notice if you take a look at verses 7 to 16 is that the preacher says, again I saw. That's indicating a new section. So you know we're, we're in a long section on observation. The preacher's telling us a lot of things that over time he has seen, he's observed, and he's making comment on under the sun, apart from God, the human experience. You'll also see some very familiar words that we've seen over and over in in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, striving after wind, under the sun. You see these phrases pop up, verses 7, verse 8, verse 16. If you notice when we read through it just a few moments ago, uh, you may have picked up that the word one, O-N-E, The word one is repeated five times in this section. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. 
we quickly discover that in our text, the preacher is talking about individuals. And he's talking about individuals that have a similar problem. In verses 7 and 8, we see a solitary rich person whose life is vanity. On the other end, in verses 13 to 16, we find a very popular king whose life is also vanity. And then there's something in between these two sections. And you've noted, you've noted this before, but often in the Bible, especially in Hebrew poetry, which Ecclesiastes is full of, when you find that there are some similar ideas functioning kind of like bookends in a section at the beginning and then at the end, the author is trying to point you to his main idea, which oftentimes is the filling in between the sandwich, the pieces of bread. You know what I mean? So that's what we find in our text this week. The problem of isolation in the outer sections, verse 7 and 8 and verses 13 to 16, and then we see the solution to isolation in the middle section. That's verses 9 through 12. And we know Solomon is trying to emphasize this middle section, this middle point, because he makes the point quickly in verse 12, and then he gives three illustrations right after that to emphasize the point again and again and again. So that's kind of how he's laid out these verses for us this morning. So let's jump in and take a look at them together. Notice, first of all, if you're taking notes, the problem of isolation. The problem of isolation. So again, we're going to see this in verses 7 and 8 and 13 to 16. So what is the problem he identifies? We might say it in, in our terms. We might say that this the problem here is being a loner workaholic. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. They could have been written yesterday. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet, there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Life that's lived for me. Here's how one writer describes this picture that Solomon's painting for us. He is the company's chief executive. He's made it all the way to the top of the tree. But he lives there alone, utterly alone. He has no children, no family, no friends, and his only companions are his work and his wealth. But it's not as if that is enough. His hours are as long now as they've ever been. He obsesses over his emails and his meetings and his reports. When one bonus arrives, he's thinking about the next one. He can't afford to have a wife and a family because they would get in the way. A social life would curb his output. And the only input that he needs comes from a screen and some figures. Well, there's kind of a modern description of what Solomon's getting at here. Another author adds this, quote, He could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. And that's all right, because he doesn't want to sit with them either, unquote. It is possible to kill yourself with work. 
and never even ask why you're doing it or for whom you're doing it. So all you type A strivers out there, that should scare you a little, right? Are you busy? Anybody busy here today? Not at the moment, but are you busy? Yeah. If you're busy, what are you busy with? Think of the top one or two or three things in your life that make you feel busy. If you do feel busy, I'd encourage you to find some time to ask this simple question. Maybe you can even do that in your ABF classes today. Why am I doing this? Whether you're trying to become valedictorian of your class in school, to get into your dream college, or whether you're trying to disciple 20 different people at the same time in your church, just slow down enough to ask, Why am I doing this? There's a second individual, verses 13 to 16. Jump down there in our text. Look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. We're talking about a position of power here. The king. Power can close your ears to counsel. We see that often in the scriptures, don't we? In fact, Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, would be one of those people that closed his ears to counsel. In the 17th century, uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote this. Listen to these words. This is why each rung of the ladder which brings us up in the world takes us further from the truth Because people are more wary, more cautious, more sensitive of offending those whose friendship is most useful and enmity or conflict most dangerous. Blaze writes, a prince can be the laughingstock of Europe and the only one to know nothing about it. The story continues in verses 14 and 15. For he went from prison to the throne, talking about the youth. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Now the preacher may be reflecting here on some historical incident, something that actually happened. When I read this, Uh, My mind went back as an example to Joseph in the book of Genesis. Do you remember how Joseph uh, came out of prison to assume uh, pretty much the top levels in the land of Egypt? And I I don't know that he's referring to Joseph, but but there's probably two people here that he's talking about. The king, the old king who doesn't listen to anybody anymore. And then the youth who comes from poverty and from prison, but yet he's going to work his way up and take the king's place. In any case, the point is clear. Here's the point. It doesn't matter if you're the old king who's had power for a long time or if you're the youth who's just gotten power and you're very popular and all the people are with you. Verse 16, the point is power doesn't last. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, very popular, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. 
Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Kind of reminds me again of Joseph. You remember? Joseph was right there at the top of the, top of the food chain in Egypt for a long time. And then you remember the Bible says, then a Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph. And things kind of changed for him at that point. Well, let's, uh, let's go on here. Um, this, this fellow, this young fellow, was popular for a while. People followed him for a while. But as we know, crowds, the masses, can be very fickle. They can turn quickly. One of the television programs that Deborah and I like to watch when we, uh, when we can each night is Wheel of Fortune. Anybody watch Wheel of Fortune out there? Look at all, all us old people. Yeah. Um, if you're not somehow familiar with the game show... It's basically a modern-day version of Hangman, if you remember Hangman, where contestants try to guess familiar phrases by guessing letters and having those revealed little by little until someone guesses the phrase. But the phrase Wheel of Fortune didn't come from that game show. It wasn't invented. It actually comes from classical Greek mythology. Uh, The ancient Greeks and the Romans pictured the goddess named Fortuna. Fortuna was spinning a giant wooden wheel in in the mythology. And that wheel had people strapped to it. And so if the goddess spins the wheel and you get to the top of the wheel, you're prospering. But if she spins the wheel and you end up on the bottom, you're tanking. And so all of life, according to those who would embrace this, this pagan mythology, Everything was random. Everything was up to chance. It was up to Fortuna and how she spun her wheel. Well, of course, the author of Ecclesiastes would know that behind what his culture may have thought was an arbitrary spinning wheel of fortune is actually a sovereign God. It's ultimately God's hand that turns the wheel of our lives, isn't it? But from our vantage point, down here under the sun, sometimes all we can see is that the wheel keeps turning and nobody stays on the top for very long. Look again at verse 16. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. We've heard that theme before in Ecclesiastes, how people won't remember you after you're gone. In the news this year, this over the past year or so, you probably heard of names of famous people that have been removed from landmarks and from the, the, um, buildings and schools. Uh, names like Paul Revere, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Diane Feinstein, Winston Churchill, even J.K. Rowling. They've stripped these names off of different buildings for all kinds of different reasons. Even if you were, or I was to get our name on a building, I, I, want, a, I want my name on a closet uh, back there. There's a particular closet I'm fond of back in the hallway. But even if you get your name on a building, it doesn't mean that it'll stay there. Power, political success, reputation, it can all vanish overnight, just like that. And even if it lasts for decades, it will soon turn to vapor just like everything else under the sun. Even God noted in the Garden of Eden that it was not good for man to be alone. And these individuals provide exhibit A and B 
of some of the problems that can happen when we are isolated from others. So what's the solution to isolation? Do we just work real hard and try to accumulate as much wealth as we can and your life is driven that way? Or perhaps you are all after power and reputation and fame and you're just trying to get to the top of the wheel? What's the solution to this kind of isolation, which is vanity? Verses 9 through 12. The preacher tells us the solution is working together. Look at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here's our proverb. Verse number 9. It's another ray of light in the darkness of Ecclesiastes. Remember how these ray of light sections often start with or have better than in the, in the labels? Here's another one. Also, notice that the word to, T-W-O, shows up three times in these verses. So as, as, the, as the number one was emphasized, now we see the number two emphasized. And, of course, it's just good sense, isn't it? Two are better than one. And there's three illustrations Solomon gives. If you fall, it's good to have another person around, right? You ever fallen and nobody's around? It can be a scary thing, can it? Otherwise, they wouldn't make those commercials, you know, where the older person's laying on the floor, Help! I've fallen! And I can't get up! Well, the reason that they have those little devices is because people fall and they're alone! And they need help. This is just common sense, right? It's good to have another person around. Another illustration Solomon gives. If you're exposed to the elements and you're out in the cold, huddling together can help you survive and stay warm. And anyone who's learned any kind of survival skills knows that that's what you do when you're cold, when you have hypothermia and you're with another person. If you're not with another person, tough, right? If you're with another person, you huddle together, you get as close as you can to each other, and that will help you stay warm. It'll help you to survive. Another illustration Solomon gives, if you're attacked, you want a friend to help defend you from harm. If you're only one person, unless you're some, you know, martial arts superstar, you know, you're probably not going to fare that well against other people who come to hurt you. But if you've got a friend who will stand with you shoulder to shoulder, you have a much better chance of fending off an attack. And at the end of each one of these illustrations, did you notice there's a little clincher just to kind of shove the point of, the, of, of the, 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 the truth in a little bit further? The, after the end of the first illustration, there's a woe. If you are alone when you fall and you don't have another person to lift you up, woe to you. And then there's a rhetorical question after the second illustration. Um, if you, uh, f- if you are, are together, you keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And the answer is, you can't, right? It's a rhetorical question. And then at the end of the last illustration about uh, defending yourself and having a friend there, there's another proverb that's, that's given there. The threefold cord is not quickly broken. Brothers and sisters, God did not create us to be rugged individuals. God did not create us, as the old saying goes, to just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's not how God created us. 
He didn't create us to pursue our own visions of accomplishment utterly alone, unaided, overcoming all obstacles with no help from anyone else. Instead, He created us to depend on Him, first of all. We are in, our, in and of ourselves. There are all sorts of realms that we could apply this preacher's counsel to from these verses, aren't there? We could apply it to the workplace. We could apply it to the family. We could apply it to, to living with our roommates. We could apply it to studying. We could apply it to sports. We could apply it to so much more. With more people, you get more accomplished. But let's think especially about how these verses apply to our life together as a church family. The preacher says in verse 12 that a threefold cord is not easily broken. Now, I want to tell you, through the years, people have speculated a zillion ways about what this means. Some people say it's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Some people say it's the husband and the wife and God. Uh, that people say all kinds of things for what this might represent. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that it symbolizes anything in particular. It's a principle, and it's a generally true principle. If you take one piece of rope, you have a much better chance of snapping it than if you take two pieces of rope and weave it together, or if you take three pieces of rope and weave it together. The strength is exponentially increased. And brothers and sisters, if you're a member of our church or a Bible-believing church like this one, you are part of about a 200-fold cord. Do you realize that? When we covenant together as members, we are committing to provide for one another spiritual, Christ-centered versions of all the things that verses 9 to 12 are talking about, burden-bearing, Comfort in sorrow, help to persevere, strength in weakness, strength to keep seeking Christ, defense against temptation. When you join the church, you add your one strand to the whole, and you've gained in return the strength of the 199 others. To live in genuine community takes work. It's hard work. It can even be frustrating work. Every church member is called by God to be both a giver and a receiver. Which one of those things is harder for you? Which one is less appealing? For some of us, it's hard to slow down our own personal agendas enough to take notice of other people to see what's going on in their lives, to pick up and carry their burdens. For others, it's harder to let other people bear your burdens. Some of us are self-isolating. We're deeply independent. You want to be able to handle your own problems. You think you're weak if you can't. But I've got news for you, brothers and sisters. We're all weak. And the problem isn't weakness. 
The problem is the illusion of strength that you think you have. Ultimately, refusing to let others help you is just as isolating and does as much damage to the body as refusing to help others yourself. One illustration of this, brothers and sisters, this pandemic that we're in, whatever you want to call it, presents us with a powerful temptation to drift away from fellowship. COVID-19 is a ready-made excuse to neglect the body of Christ. Every single one of us, as it were, has a doctor's note to do so because of the times we live in. Now, these days, there are legitimate reasons that some folks have not to attend church or not to see other members face-to-face outside of our main gathering. There are people who are sick and contagious, and, and uh, when you're sick, we encourage you to stay home and not share the love with others. That's just common sense, right? But there are bad reasons, too. Are you just finding that going to church is too much of a hassle? Just too inconvenient? Have you started enjoying having more of your Sunday to yourself to just do whatever you want? If you have questions in your mind about whether your reasons for staying home are good or bad, I'd encourage you, talk to other mature believers that you respect you can, you can talk to any of our pastors here. You can talk to any of our leadership team. You can seek wisdom. You can bring those concerns to other believers and to the Lord and pray that whether you stay home or attend, you would do it for God's glory and people's good and not for bad reasons because we weren't created to live in isolation, to worship in isolation. We're created to be together. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up to the front for our final song in just a minute. You you know what the problem to the solution is, right? I mean, here's the problem. We like to isolate ourselves sometimes. We like to just do things on our own and not do them in community with other people. And that hurts us, and that's vanity, and it's pretty much a meaningless life. The solution, of course, is to do things together, to involve others, That's a great help, and it's illustrated in the church and in many other places, in the family and in uh, workplace and school, on, on sports teams, wherever you get together with other people for a common good, you can do a lot more than you can on your own. But there is a problem, right? Because even the best of people will fail us. Our friends fail us. Our family sometimes fails us. Even Christians can fail each other. That's why we worship somebody else, right? I love Margaret, but I don't worship her. I love Tom, but I don't worship him. I love John, but I don't worship him. Someone who was popular for a while 
had crowds follow him, even shout their hosannas to him as their coming king, a few days later knew the fickleness of the crowd, didn't he? When they cried, crucify him. And you know, here's the remarkable irony of the cross. Jesus suffered and died to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God and to come into relationship with other brothers and sisters in the family of God. Jesus dying on the cross makes that possible. But did you ever stop and think that Jesus died and suffered alone? Utterly alone. He endured the cross alone. There's this slow, sad separation that develops from Gethsemane all the way to Golgotha. He was forsaken by Israel. He was forsaken by his own disciples. And in a way that is impossible for us to completely understand, he was forsaken even by his own father. He said that, remember? Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it is to be isolated, to be lonely, more than we ever will. But out of that solitude of death and a cold, dark tomb, Jesus arose, and he arose victorious. He opened the pathway through his own lonely, solitude, isolated suffering. He opened the door to true brotherly love for all of us through his sacrifice, through his conquest. And friends, even though we have each other, and by the way, this church is amazing in its love for one another. I've always known that since the first time I sat in those back pews as a visitor. I've known that and I've seen that. But even though we have each other, even when we fail, even when I fail you, and I will, and even when you fail me, and you will, Jesus never will. He's promised to be the one who sticks closer than a brother. Solomon wrote that in the Proverbs. To be the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. He'll never do it. So take a breath for a minute. Step back. Look over chapter 4 as a whole. What does it teach us? Here it is in a sentence. You ready? You and I need to live for someone other than yourself and for something more than money, something more than success, something more than power. Let me say that again. You and I need to live for someone other than yourself and for something more 
than money, success, and power. And that person is first and foremost the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And second, your brothers and sisters in this room. We were created to live in a loving community with God and with our neighbors. And only Christ makes it possible. As we've been saying in Ecclesiastes, only under the S-O-N can we find the true solution to a lonely and pointless life under the S-U-N. Only in Christ can we find meaning in our work, joy for our hearts, and salvation for our souls. Well, that brings us, brothers and sisters, to the end of the first long section of observations in the book of Ecclesiastes. The things that Solomon saw and recorded for us. Next week, we look at the first section of instruction. What should we do with all this information? What is our response? And it's a great text, as every text really is a great text in the Word of God. Next week is a great text as well. But for now, let's stand together as we close and sing a song of praise for the work that Christ has done, and only Christ has done. And Christ has done in solitary isolated loneliness for us to make it possible to bring us together in this place and making us better together. So let's sing together.